we have for now the third time, if you include the episode that I haven't edited yet, this will be our third guest featured episode. Joining us is the man who came up with the topic of today, John Savray. John, what made you choose this topic? Um, you know, that's a, that's a good question, honestly. Uh, mm-hmm. I think uh, a lot of people, uh, they don't really know a whole lot about the background of the interstate system. Um, it's something that everybody, almost everybody uses every day. Uh, I think there's just a lot of interesting tidbits that can be addressed. Good stuff. I learned a lot reading about it. <laughs> a lot of stuff I didn't know, especially when we get into the standards of the like numbering and all that. Yeah. A lot of stuff I didn't know. But uh, it's a pretty recent thing, all things considered. I was pretty stunned to find out that the actual, like, the, the interstates that were in their original plan, that finished in 92. Yeah, yeah, so very pretty, much pretty, more recent than you would have expected. I mean, <clears throat> 92, that's just a couple of years before we were born. Yeah. Like, I, I guess, I don't know, I can't speak exactly for you guys, but uh, basically, as long as I've seen the interstates, I figured they've been around since yeah. <laughs> at least the since 60s. Forever. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, seeing that, yeah, finally finished in 92 blew my mind. Uh, well, I guess without further ado, Greg, do you want to start us off with the early history? Sure. Well, um, I mean, talking about, you know, interstate highways, like, we're going to start at, uh, what may not seem like a logical first step, and that is bicycles. Okay. (laughs) So, um, I mean, obviously, back in, like, the 1870s, cars weren't a thing yet. Like, the very first automobiles were coming around right around 1895 or so, um, but, uh, the earliest precursor to what you could consider the movement towards some sort of national highway system uh, was a movement known as the Good Roads Movement, which kicked off right around 1878, 1880, somewhere in there, right right about when um, there's an absolute huge boom in, in bicycle sales and just bicycling in general. Um, so if you think about it, logically, um, a lot of roads, like think about just like dirt roads, like the condition that dirt roads get in when it rains like crazy and like freezing and thawing, that kind of thing. Um, they would get seriously rutted out by like uh, horses and buggies. And imagine trying to ride your bicycle over crazy ruts like that, you know, especially with like, you know, 1880s bicycle technology. Yeah, with a giant t- front wheel. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm talking more when they started to get rubber tires and stuff. But um, <laughs> okay. that is very comical to think about, though. But, uh, no, it's just very difficult to ride on roads like that. So some of the earliest grassroots efforts to improve roads were bicyclists. Um, also important were farmers, just because, like, even though you could get through, you know, crappy roads on a horse and buggy, uh, if you were trying to, like, get to town to sell your to sell your uh, farm wares. Um, <laughs> crops. <laughs> crops, yeah. There, there yeah. you go. Uh, your fares. Well, <laughs> your... <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, transporting your goods to market, uh, not, not super easy to do on crappy roads. And basically at that point, there was no really, there's really no paved roads outside of cities in the United States at that point, especially if you're talking like West of the Mississippi, pretty much nothing. Those grassroots efforts, uh, didn't, you know, get a whole lot of traction, um, for quite some time, (laughs) unintentional, but thank you. Um, didn't really gain any traction, uh, something you'll see in a lot of stories, which is until rich people got involved. So once cars started to become a thing, uh, which were at the very, at the very beginning, very much a, a play thing for the elites because they were so expensive. Um, that's really when like road paving and, and improving roads really kind of took off, which was 
starting around, I'd say about 1905 or so, uh, when the car sort of started to, you know, really uh, come into uh, come into being. Yeah, that, pre- that pretty much covers the, the Good Roads movement, but... Um, <laughs> be funny if this is where you handed it over to me. <laughs> <laughs> like... Yeah, it's take it from here, Kate. No. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I do have plenty more, but um, basically, I mean, a lot of the... After that, like, a lot of the earliest efforts um, for road construction were, interestingly, privately funded, um, which is something that I kind of didn't expect. Like, I, I didn't really know that before re- reading up on this. Um, and a lot of it was, like, auto manufacturers that wanted people to buy cars um, would invest sure. would invest in, in constructing roads to try and get people out there to drive and, you know, encourage car sales. Uh, one notable exception to this was Henry Ford. Uh, Henry Ford uh, strongly believed that it was the government's duty to construct and maintain roads, which would end up being the correct viewpoint uh, down the road. And not only the correct viewpoint, that's, like, that's like the meme thing that... You know, like the government makes the roads. Isn't that like the the libertarian thing? Oh, like yeah, <laughs> the <laughs> roads are like the only thing the government should do. People are like, "Who's gonna make your roads?" That kind of thing. Uh, and I've got a uh, I've got a little fun side fact, semi related to what Greg was just mentioning there with uh, automobile manufacturers uh, really wanting to fund the roads. Uh, it doesn't have to do with the United States interstate system at all. But are you guys aware that the uh, Michelin star system for restaurants? around the world uh that was actually started by the michelin tire company in france uh to get people out on the road and go visit different towns that's hopefully insane. on michelin tires and now it's like <laughs> the standard so for yeah, restaurants the... wow yeah it's really taken off but that's like that's so clever yeah it's like i've always wondered if there was a relation but mm-hmm. yeah it's like, like we don't I just sell like, tires I just they would be no. Yeah, sell the sizzle, not the steak, kind of thing. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, like there was there was a good number of uh, of early uh, privately funded highways. Um, one of which I'm actually sitting approximately, I'd say about 500 yards from right now, and that all of you have spent a good time, good amount of time traveling on as well. Is it the 30? Lincoln Highway? Lincoln Highway, uh, oh, which yeah. which would be so. For those unfamiliar with armchair lore, um, all the people speaking here <laughs> attended Iowa State University in Ames, Iowa. Um, straight, straight, straight through the middle of uh, of Ames, Iowa, is uh, Lincoln Way, the main thoroughfare through town. Which, uh, if you ever look at a map of Ames, Iowa, uh, you'll see that there's a Highway 30 that runs basically goes towards town, kind of juts down, and then comes back. That's because. Uh, that's the Lincoln Highway 30 is a later continuation of the Lincoln Highway. They basically just paved over the same path. Um, Interesting. Lincoln Way used to be part of that, but they figured having your main highway run through the dead center of town, not such a great idea. Moved it kind of outside of town, and uh, that's what became Highway 30. But Wow. Yeah. Never knew uh, that. The, that's why there's Lincoln Highway signs all over the place. Um, like Yeah, just, once I looked it up, I really I recognized that logo. I'd yeah. seen that a thousand times. Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, and that, that route goes uh, New York City to San Francisco. Or, oh, let me, is, is it LA? I think you're right. Yeah, San Francisco. Lincoln, Lincoln Park in San Francisco. Yeah, originally went through 13 states. Um, but, wow. uh, yeah, the interesting thing, the, the part that really threw me off was why they chose to go through Ames instead of Des Moines. Makes no sense to me. Because it would not have taken, it would not have been difficult to jog it down there. And it's not like Ames, I mean, 
we had a university at that point, but like Des Moines was far and Capital above the city. Yeah, <laughs> it just makes yeah, makes true. little sense to me. But anyway, so yeah, that was one of the earlier ones, and uh, it was not originally going to be called the Lincoln Highway. Um, it was actually going to be. Um, I think the guy was Fisher. Was the name of the guy that was uh, the guy was like championing championing it originally. Um, but uh, yeah, it was Carl Graham Fisher who ran Fisher Automotive, uh, which uh, a thing you might have seen if you've ever looked around like an like an old classic car. Fisher Body, uh, who made who made uh, body shells for like GM and Pontiac and stuff like that all throughout this like uh, then you know. Once they stopped building cars, they just started becoming a, a, con- a contractor for other um, Detroit auto manufacturers. Mm. But anyway, there's a reason it's not called the Fisher Highway. It's just because basically Fisher got all these co- these different um, auto companies involved with uh, funding this highway, and Fisher Highway didn't really have a good ring to it, and they decided that Lincoln Highway sounded a lot better, um, and they just kind of branded it as, you know, you know, Abraham Lincoln reunited the country and linked it together. We're going to link the country together with a road. Kind of made a patriotic thing out of it, and that's why all the signs are also red, white, and blue. Kind of, kind of linked into the oh, same word. the same topic. But anyway, the Lincoln Highway was you, um, basically. Go ahead, Kane. Okay. No, I I just realized. So I did not realize. I did not know that that was all one stretch of highway. That Route Thirty, that cuts right through Philadelphia. Literally, I. Our first apartment in Philly was like a hundred feet from that road. Yeah, I had no idea that it connected. Would have taken you two turns to get back to Ames. Wow, pretty much <laughs> the efficiency. Well, I, I mean, I thought about that once, and when I moved from Nevada to um, Sioux City, it was like six turns or seven turns door to door between the two houses. They were like two thousand miles apart. Beauty of the interstate. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, the. The problem with the Lincoln Highway was that it wasn't like they just, like, paved a road across the country. Most of it was unpaved. Most of it was pretty unimproved still. And uh, it really wasn't, like, contiguous. It was a lot of, like, jog here, jog there. But it was just, it was signed well, you know. It was a way to get from coast to coast, Precisely. basically. It was the first, one of the first, or well, I think it was the first fully le- full-length Mm-hmm. connection between the east coast and west coast where it was a contiguous route that was marked the entire way and you know at least somewhat well put together but uh anyway as things went on um the federal government got more and more interested in um building out a system of, of roads uh through across the united states um largely one of the biggest concerns for them was actually defense um, and a lot of these lessons came from World War I, where um, the U.S. military started to realize how important, uh, like, trucks and cars were for military uh, just being able to move goods and... Uh, yeah, supply lines. Yeah, exactly. Um, that was a huge thing during World War I, and uh, a lot of the, you know, army, army leaders from World War I came back and were like, hey, we need to take a second look at our, at our infrastructure here and see if we're, you know... Like, say we needed to mobilize a bunch of troops to the West Coast right now using trucks. How hard would it be? You know, that kind of thing. So that's exactly what they did. Um, They called them the Transcontinental Motor Convoys. And they did a handful of them. There's like one in 1915, 1919, 1919 again, uh, and then 1920. Then they actually did, uh, 
they did some commemoration ones in 2009 and 2019 where they took uh, like uh, old-time military vehicles and drove them across country, which is pretty cool. But uh, anyway, um, there was some, they had some interesting results. The most famous one, I believe, was the 1919 Motor Transport uh, Corps Convoy. Um, it took them, it was a 3,000-mile route. They went from Washington, D.C. to Oakland, California, and they did take the Lincoln <laughs> Highway. Um, and at the very end, they took a ferry into San Francisco because they wanted to go complete coast to coast. Um, Let's give it a, maybe a little tease, Greg. Can you tell me who was part of the nineteen nineteen? Just about to get to that Motor Transport Corps. Um, a certain bald president, which if that doesn't give it away, <laughs> the only bald president, as far as I'm, is that that's correct, right? Is there any sure, other? Ford was mostly bald, wasn't he? I meant completely bald, though, like shaven. Completely bald, Eisenhower, yeah, yeah. probably. Well, there we go. Yeah, Dwight D. Eisenhower. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> was who we're talking about here. Dwight D. Eisenhower was part of that uh, 1919 um, survey. Um, so uh, you'll you'll find that later we'll talk about him some more and some of his the, some of the things that he experienced on that trip uh, came to shape some of his future policy. Um, and while we're on the topic, um, so he didn't. One of the interesting things is Ford or uh, excuse me Eisenhower. Did not get to serve in World War One. He was like he graduated from West Point, like I think in nineteen seventeen, but didn't quite get deployed in, in time, um, much to his chagrin, is my understanding. But um, he did end up not only serving in World War Two, but he was what was his title? Do you, do you guys know? It was like Supreme Commander of the Allied Forces. I think is what he ended Supreme up. Supreme yeah. Allied Commander. There you go. Yeah, because yeah, he was the lead for D Day, I believe. The lead commander for uh, the D Day invasion. That's correct. Yeah. So he's one of like what, like six five star generals. Yeah. In the entire history of the military. Whoa. I guess to include admirals as well. Yeah. So he he took part in this uh, boater transport convoy, and then as I was mentioning, Kane, you you don't have anything on this, right? I don't want to step on your toes here. On his World War Two service. Oh no! Okay. Just like one point to make but well it's probably the one i'm going to bring up here which is um one of the things that um eisenhower saw um while he was in europe during world war ii um we're skipping ahead here but just while we're on the topic um was germany's autobahn system um which uh was still kind of in its infancy at that point it wasn't nearly what it is today god forbid but um he just he saw that there was a unified system of highways in Germany during World War Two, and that was something that even even in the nineteen forties we had not figured out in the United States yet completely how to put that together. Um, and he saw that how how quickly the Germans were able to, um, you know, move their supply mobilize. around, yeah, mobilize, move supplies around, that kind of thing. And that was yeah, that was the I, other prime driving force behind his uh, highway interest. Because I believe uh, Hitler like built that specifically for World War Two. Yeah, it was it was not what the Autobahn is today. It was called the Reichs Autobahn. Yep. Yeah. And I think it just connected like Berlin and Munich and some of the major population centers, but basically uh, four supply lines. Yeah, I'm assuming yeah, was no, that probably part of the, his greater like Blitzkrieg strategy? It had to be right. Moving Absolutely. quickly through yeah. Germany, and, <laughs> just know. to build this network yep. of supply lines. Absolutely. Well, moving back to uh, 19 teens in the United States. Um, one of the uh, landmark things here it was the Federal uh, Aid Road Act of 1916, which was also known as the Banks Head Shackleford Act. 
because uh, of uh, John. Everybody John... had names like that back then. Yeah, yeah it's pretty. <laughs> Love goofy. to see a resurgence. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. real long last name. <laughs> Legally changed my name to uh, to Rusty Shackelford. <laughs> <laughs> Worth it. Um, so yeah, it was it was um, a Missouri rep, uh, Dorsey Shackelford, and uh, an Alabama senator, uh, John Bankshead, um, were the people that uh, kind of wrote up this act. Uh, it was basically based on some model legislation written by the American Association of State Highway Officials. Um, but the whole idea was that it started just providing grant uh, grant money for uh, building highways in the United States. It was uh, the very first federal highway funding law. And uh, it, was, it was, I mean, not nearly as expansive as some of the later ones were, but it was a huge step towards what would eventually become the U.S. interstate highway system. I, I do want to note that was three years prior to that, uh, that whole motor transport convoy thing, but uh, you got to realize that at this point, these, uh, like that Federal Aid Road Act, they're not building freeways across the country yet at that point. They're basically trying to um, pave out more roads between major cities on the East Coast because the West Coast was pretty, pretty sparse at that point. And tax also, revenue was like hardly even a thing at this right. point. Yeah, and the, and like gas taxes weren't a thing yet, which we'll get into in a bit. Um, it was but, like tariffs, like where we got yeah our revenue from. When, uh, one so, thing. Oh, sorry, Greg. No, go ahead, Joe. Uh, one thing I was going to note while you were talking about the uh, that 1919 convoy, a uh, little fun tidbit hmm. I saw. Uh, it took the convoy because uh, again they went through the Lincoln Highway, so obviously they went through Iowa. Yeah, yep. it took them two hours to go the five miles between Council Bluffs and Omaha. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> Could you imagine, man? Well, because of a bridge it's, or it's, something. It's, a, it's river bottom, dude. Yep. Yeah, it doesn't uh, really dwell into like exactly why it took them two hours, but yeah, kind of. I'm I could deduce, like mud. Greg said, all that mud, the mighty Missouri motor transport con- convoy thing happens, and then. Um, Shortly after is the Federal Aid Highway Act of 1921, uh, which is sponsored by a also known as the Phipps Act because it was sponsored by Lawrence Phipps of Colorado, and uh, it was like the first like coherent plan for like a major interstate highway system, um, and it did provide 50/50 matching funds for state highway building up to seven percent of roads statewide. Uh, so it was like federal federal funding promising promises uh, for states so they could start building out stuff. And by the end of 1921, uh, they paid out more than 75 million dollars to states, which I didn't. I didn't bother uh, converting that, but that seems like it's probably in the range of at least a, a couple billion dollars U.S. today. So, pretty substantial, all things considered. So, um, immediately after that, 19, it was so successful that in 1922, they commissioned uh, General John J. Pershing um, to draw up what it uh, would be known as the Pershing Map. This was pretty much the the result of those uh, motor convoys that you were seeing, like in 1919, 1920, that kind of that kind of time. So the Pershing map was basically proposed roads from General Pershing as to how could we integrate our highway system in the United States for the purpose of defense. Where would we draw our our, our highways if we were going to do it for defense reasons? And that's what the Pershing map achieved was basically figuring out how to do that. A, a very, so it was, uh, I don't have a number for the entirety 
of the length that they had proposed. Oh, okay, never mind, sorry. Um, that's the number that's right here. So he proposed 78,000 miles of roads was what Pershing drew up. Um, and most of them did end up getting eventually built, um, and a large number of them ended up being interstate highways. Um, but the proposal at the time, it emphasized uh, coastal protection, so there's a lot of stuff on like the eastern seaboard, and in like California and, and then uh, Pacific Northwest, as well as uh, Mexican border defense, so a lot of like southern routes, that kind of thing. Um, and then also industrial needs of the, of the nation, so a lot of stuff in like Ohio, Pennsylvania, that kind of area for like, um, you know, where steel mills were and where coal mining and that kind of stuff was. Um, another example of that would be uh, they put a high priority on a route uh, from like um, up through Michigan up to Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, mm-hmm. where it connects with Canada. Sure. Uh, and also almost completely bypassed the entire deep south because um, there just wasn't really much industry down there. and uh, <laughs> Not anymore. Also, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And uh, also completely ignored most of West Texas because there wasn't really any oil fields there. Same thing with Oklahoma. And then also all of southern Florida because the, their argument was that any any enemy army that landed in south Florida would have absolutely no way to move, move northwards. <laughs> <laughs> they, not you're, just wrong. Like, you're just gonna run into swamp what are you gonna do yeah. you know didn't have airboats yeah. then swamps and the gators exactly <laughs> uh anyway um after that there was i mean they continued a, a lot of what happened in between like the 20s and the actual first basically where Kane takes off when our our interstate highways start becoming a real thing is a lot of just States building highways um, that aren't necessarily, you know, what we would think of as interstates today. A lot of two-lane stuff, occasionally like four-lane highway type stuff, but no like super highways and no major integrated systems in between then and uh, in like the 50s. So just a lot of construction, especially in like the Northeast, lots of like toll roads and stuff like that. Um, a lot of like tunnels being dug, that kind of thing, uh, but nothing, nothing super cohesive yet. And uh, that's pretty much where I'll hand it off to you, Kane. There was no major, major funding things I could find between like the twenties and the fifties, okay, or any or any major things to talk about. So, nice. Yeah, but uh, yeah, go ahead. Yes. Kay. Oh yeah, so, Paul's got a little little rest stop uh, for us. A little quick rest stop for you guys. So first <laughs> on our stop along the interstate. <laughs> oh, come uh, on, <laughs> what you see outside your <laughs> Rick Steve outside your window. <laughs> <laughs> You see a large pistachio. He's like, oh, man. Where on earth do you think the largest pistachio is located at? Go I ahead. was not close expecting what you had to be something like this. <laughs> um, yeah, so this is a roadside attraction, and it's a very large, presumably just, plaster just, pistachio. Correct. Just okay. a quick rest stop. You see. Use the bathroom. Check out this pistachio. Uh, Where do you think it is? Put on a beret and get shot. Arkansas. Oh. oh. Honestly, I didn't even know that they grew pistachios in the United States. Um, (laughs) They do. California, I guess. That's yeah. yeah, I'd say that's pretty safe bet. Um, They're getting warmer. For the sake of diversity, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go North Carolina. Uh, Okay, Dan. I'm gonna say Arizona. Oh, Dan, you're the closest. So <laughs> the largest pistachio is located in Alamogordo, New Mexico. Oh, nice. Interesting. 
So a man named Tom McGinn raised a formidable pistachio farm in <laughs> Alamogordo. Formidable. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go was, fight was, your pistachio you don't trees, old man. With that farm. It, was, it was quite the farm. Um, uh, but he later died in 2007, oh. and his son, Tim McGinn, <laughs> Father Tom, son Tim, wanted to mor- memorialize him with, would you guess, a large pistachio. Um, Encased his remains in the plaster. <laughs> oh, that would be creepy. <laughs> Mixed in his um, ashes. Yes. But, no, they but always considered that of... Tom a bit of a nut. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, 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 yes. yes. So, yes, Alamogordo, New Mexico, the largest pistachio. Interesting. Well, thank Add you. For that. Add that to the road trip list. I, yeah, definitely, definitely would have thought California. They're they're a big nut place. A little goofy. Let's talk about Ike. Interesting. Yeah, let's talk Ike. I like Ike. I like Ike. So, we already talked about the Motor Transport Corps, so I can skip all that. But um, there is a quote he had when he was first kind of talking about the interstate system. He said, "The old convoy." had started me thinking about good two-lane highways, the wisdom of broader ribbons across our land. So in 1954, Eisenhower puts one of his generals, General Lucius D. Clay, in charge of a what committee. A name. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, he put him in charge of a committee whose purpose was to determine how best they could implement an international, si- or not international, sorry, an interstate system of highways in this country effectively. And... Clay, in turn, had this to say about it in a public statement. It was evident we needed better highways. We needed them for safety, to accommodate more automobiles. We needed them for defense purposes, if that should ever be necessary. And we needed them for the economy. Not just as a public works measure, but for future growth. And his initial proposal that he came up with, I'm sure it was based in part on the, that Pershing thing you talked about. Uh, the initial proposal was a 10-year long Ended up being a little bit longer than that. Ten year long, one hundred <laughs> billion dollar program, and that's in nineteen fifty five bucks. Wow, was I don't have an inflation adjusted number for that. I'm sorry, but it had a total of about forty thousand miles of divided roads that would link all American cities that had a population greater than fifty thousand. Clay and Eisenhower disagreed on one major thing, and that was that initially Eisenhower wanted it to be partially or mostly funded by just making the entire interstate system toll roads. And thankfully, Lucius Clay was like, that's not a good idea. It's going to be very hard (laughs) to staff those in the rural parts. It's only really going to be effective in major population centers, especially on the East Coast, where most people are driving. And Dan, maybe you can chime in. How are the toll roads doing over in that part of the country? You got a lot of them? Alive and well, my friend. They are are kicking. (laughs) Before we found a back route, it used to cost $15 one way to drive to my parents' house. Crazy. Jeez. Three toll roads. That's highway robbery. Whoa. (laughs) I think the, uh, (laughs) I I watched a uh, video about, like, the most expensive road to travel per mile, and I think it is the Pennsylvania Turnpike. Definitely. And especially if you if you just take it right on into New Jersey, because then you land on I ninety five in New Jersey, and that is also a toll road. <laughs> so you just you just stuck. See my my uh, my little cheat I've done twice now is I've bought cars in Chicago, so when I drive them home, I don't have license plates, and I just drive right through the uh, I pass stuff and just <laughs> let them take pictures. <laughs> what are they going to do? Zoom in on my VIN number? Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> 
So, Kane, if they don't, if they didn't finance the highway system via toll, how did they? Well, John, I'm glad you asked. Um, <laughs> the well, initially, Clay and Eisenhower came to an agreement on how it should be, and it wasn't how it ended up being funded because they switched from Clay convinced Eisenhower that toll roads weren't going to work, so they thought, let's just use public bonds. Nice. And in February of 1955, Eisenhower sends the proposal, including the, the public bonds drafted by Clay, to Congress. Now, not that this particularly matters, but Eisenhower was a Republican president, and both houses of Congress were Democrat at that point. Despite that, the Senate immediately agreed with the proposal. They were like, yep, that's great. The House Democrats, though, didn't like the idea that the whole plan was to be funded by public bonds. So went back to the drawing board, and what they ended up coming up with was the Highway Trust Fund, which is how it is funded now. And that is almost entirely based on, it. well, I, small caveat, in the initial construction, it was the Highway Trust Fund, but of course that would also take some time to accrue some money, so they also diverted some of the defense budget to the initial construction. And that's partially why it's the full name is like defense, you know, like the Eisenhower defense highway system or whatever. I don't hate that. Yeah. If part Sorry. of it is to help the, yeah, the defense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But what primarily funds the Highway Trust Fund is a fuel tax. And it is, the modern numbers are like, let me look up what it is. 18.4 cents per gallon. On nice. gasoline. And do you have the diesel number? I do not have the diesel I think number. it was like 24. It was like 24 cents per gallon on diesel. Unless you're sneaky and run some of the red stuff. <laughs> I don't know what that means, and I don't want you to explain it. Yeah. Um, Ag gas, so. untaxed, that's all. Oh, okay. And so through Very the, illegal. Oh, surely. <laughs> and through this highway trust fund, the federal government would end up paying for 90% of the interstate construction cost, and the states were on the hook for the other 10%. Wow. It's probably inverse now. Well, that was just for construction. Now, ah. upkeep and maintenance is mostly the state which the interstate falls in is mm. on the hook for the maintenance of the interstate. That's too bad. So finally, 1956, Eisenhower signed the damn thing into law, the Federal Aid Highway Act of 1956. And that started the construction of the interstates. So there are three states that all have a claim to being the first. And I think they all have a pretty valid claim. Missouri signed the first three contracts to begin construction, and that was on August 2nd, 1956. Kansas, however, they started construction on the interstate before the act was actually signed into law because they wanted to be the first very badly. So they didn't sign the first contracts, but they actually started construction on the roads before Missouri did. And the third, that I think is also kind of fair, is the Pennsylvania Turnpike, because it was actually opened in October 1st, 1940, but they just made it part of the interstate system. Nice. It just got adopted into being part of I-70 and 76. Worst stretch of road in the country. <laughs> 76. I don't know. Have you, uh, have you been on I-80 west of uh, Lincoln, Nebraska? No. It's a I would, very I dull would, stretch oh. of land. It's like it 94 would, in North Dakota. At least it's well-paved and you can go fast. That's true. <laughs> it's true. 
or I thirty five anywhere in Texas. Always oh, yeah, under man. construction. God. Or or whatever White that two lane man. Or whatever that two lane road was that you smoked a rabbit at redacted miles an hour. <laughs> <laughs> it was a jackalope, mind yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> You disintegrated the only jackalope yeah paul just nuked it <laughs> i it woke me up in the back seat there were so many it's not yeah. like i could just dodge you would have put us in way more danger trying to avoid hitting a rabbit yes than absolutely just oh, hitting absolutely it. you were going what like 90 miles an hour ah well <laughs> yeah, that's neither here nor <laughs> there allegedly yeah i got some construction milestones i'm gonna rifle through them because it's a little boring there's only six of them but October 17th, 1974, Nebraska becomes the first state to finish all of its sections of the interstate. October 12th, 1979, five years later, the final section of the I-5, which stretches from Mexico to Canada, is completed. On August 22nd, 1986, seven years later, the final section of I-80 is completed near Salt Lake City, making it the first contiguous road to span from ocean to ocean. And at the time, the longest road in the world, from stretching from San Francisco to like T Peak, New Jersey, or something. Does anybody have that stat of what the longest road is now? No, I'm guessing probably something in China or Russia. But I was going to say, I think Russia has now basically built a road that parallels the Trans-Siberian Railroad. Oh, okay. Uh. Um, now, oddly enough, get this: this final section of I-80 was completed near Salt Lake City, and it was the first contiguous road stretching from ocean to ocean. That section of road is only 50 miles from Promontory Summit, where the Transcontinental wow. Railroad, the two parts of it, met. Good job, everybody. Have, you, have any of you I guys like ever that. driven? I have not. It's, it's, a, it's a good drive. It's a very big canyon. Very, very pretty. Driven That's a such a cool times. Coincidence? I don't know. Do you think they plan that? Is there any planning of that? Like, can you do that? Or I don't know. I, I, I mean, I don't think so because it would kind of be like the state construction, right? You just have so many places where you can go through the mountains. I mean, you got to pick. Mm-hmm. A, you got to pick. That's a good point. A pass. You yeah. know, that's still cool. Yeah, very. August tenth, nineteen ninety, I ten is completed, making it the second ocean to ocean highway stretching from Santa Monica to Jacksonville, Florida. September 12th, 1991, I-90 is the third and final coast-to-coast highway to be completed, Seattle to Boston. And then, of course, on October 14th, 1992, the original plan of the interstate system is completed, and it was a section of road in Colorado that is, I think, the most expensive piece of highway ever constructed in the country because it's got multiple tunnels, over a dozen bridges. I don't remember. Okay. Yeah, I remember seeing that stat earlier. I'm trying to see if I can find it again real quick. Because it was an outrageous amount of money uh, of, of dollars per mile. I can I can picture them just like like Colorado, I guess, if that's yeah, it's like charged, right through the rock. Avoiding. <laughs> Let's well, save that one for last. Yeah. <laughs> I did well, I did look up uh, the longest road, or I guess highway rather. It is the Pan American Highway. It spans oh. from Prudhoe Bay, Alaska, all the way to, uh, I can't say that, but Argentina. That's pretty the long. Tip of Argentina. Sort of. <laughs> yeah, see, I there's don't. There's the, 35 there's, is part of that, There's right? the, there, yes, it is. Well, depending on how you take it, but the Darien Gap exists, which is in Venezuela. There's like a 
70, Panama 70 to mile. Venezuela, I think. Yeah. There's like a there's like a seventy mile or so gap, and one dude actually drove through it with a jeep, and it took him like four years to drive that fifty miles. Because it was just like insanely dense forest, and he had to check. He was going like neutral. No, I think he just like he would park it. He would park his jeep and then cut a few hundred yards at a time. That would take him like weeks because he's just like chopping down trees by hand. It was like him and one other person. Anyway, I'm willing to bet that that section in Colorado Cane probably was I seventy because Eisenhower Tunnel is 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 part of I seventy, and that tunnel is nuts. I've gone through that a, a number of times, and it never ceases to amaze me. Yeah, it's a uh, 12 mile stretch uh, featuring 40 bridges and numerous tunnels. Yeah. It doesn't give me an amount uh, per mile, like uh, like money. But, uh, but it I was can imagine, the most expensive yeah. per mile, right? Yep. <clears throat> cool. Tunnels in general are pretty sweet to drive through. Tunnels, yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Big tunnel guy. Oh, yeah. What under, else? Are under Baltimore, that, that harbor there. It's like a. None of us besides you have been there. 80 or something. Yeah, I just, I'm just throwing it out there. Sure. Balmer. I like that tunnel through the redwood tree. Mm. That's, That's gone. Yeah. That tree fell. It is gone. That tree fell. Oh, man. I have driven through it, but it... R.I.P. to a real one. Yeah. <laughs> For one what okay. else do you got, Cam? I got some standards. You want to talk standards? Nice. Sure. Love to. Uh, this is primarily speed limits and the numbering system is what I'm going to cover here. Ooh, yeah. uh, obviously, interstates have the highest speed limits in any given area, and why, with the exception being that private or that like state highway in Texas, that the tollway that has the like ninety mile per hour or whatever. Yep. Though the actual limit of the interstates is it's state by state; they decide. Yep. And most of the lower speed limits are in the heavily congested areas, especially the Northeast, as well as in certain cities such as Cleveland and John, if you'd believe it, Wheeling, West Virginia where the curves in the interstate are sharp enough in certain sections that the speed limits can go as low as 35 miles per hour on the interstate. Nice. Now, on the flip side of that, there are a lot of sections in Utah, Texas, Idaho, Montana, Oklahoma, South Dakota, and Wyoming that all have speed limits as high as 80 miles per hour on the interstate. Now, did you guys ever hear, growing up, that one out of every five miles of the interstate was straight enough for an airplane to land on. I have heard that. Uh, yeah, I'm I've guessing heard, I'm, you're going to tell. Are you going to tell us it's BS? It's total, total false. Yeah, would the, be pretty cool. It would be cool. That, Not to witness live. Can you imagine being like the workers though? Like, oh shoot, straighten this part out. Yeah. We got to land an aircraft here one day. Uh, Wait, what were the last four? Regular Fuck. testing. They, they're <laughs> yeah. just constantly driving yeah. aircraft, landing it onto. <laughs> yeah, they're like thumbing it. Like, yeah, that could fit an aircraft. Yeah, yeah. In nineteen, you know, fifties, sixties. Like, just, huh? I wonder these uh, these jet engines, aircraft, if they'll land on this. <laughs> they they just drop like a, a marble. See if it rolls. Yeah. The yeah. The numbering system is. Certainly well more thought out than I expected, but it shouldn't surprise me with an engineering project of this size. So the primary interstates are one or two digits. I'm sure we can all think of a few of those. The shorter roads, such as loops, spurs, or connecting roads, are three digits and share the last two digits with its parent road. The example I'll give that we'll all understand is I-35 has I-235 that cuts through the city of Des Moines. For those primary roads, 
the one or two digits. <clears throat> the east-west roads have even numbers, and the north-south roads have odd numbers. And the odd numbers increase going from west to east, and the even numbers increase from south to north. So, and the, the auxiliary roads, the loops and spurs, uh, they have, there's two kinds, I'm sorry. So spurs shoot off from an interstate and do not connect with another interstate or the interstate they came from. And they have an odd first digit. But loops, which usually circumnavigate or cut through a city and connect back to another interstate, are given an even first digit, like the 2 and 235. Alaska, Puerto Rico, and Hawaii all have interstates, but they're only the Hawaiian ones are actually part of the interstate system. And in Hawaii, they have H1, H2, and H3. And those are all on Oahu. So does that mean then that like Alaska and Puerto Rico, they're just like funded by the states themselves, like no federal? No, close. They are federally funded roads and they have the same like interstate logo, but they are not actually part of the interstate system. They're not, they are like state run, but they are federally funded and they have that same huh. shield as the interstate. Any That's reasoning that, like, for that or? Yeah, that like why Hawaii, but not the other two? Especially Alaska still being land I don't know, connected. maybe just the time at which it happened, the defense roads were considered more important in Hawaii, just with, like, you know, mm. Pearl, Pearl Harbor. Harbor and, yeah. yeah. Well, one other interesting thing to think about here. When exactly did we admit Alaska and Hawaii as states again? I think it was 58 and 59. I was yeah. going to say. I 50s. thought one of them was, like, 48. It's possible. Well, I just I know. Was, I know my dad. Around the fifties. My dad was born in '53 in Hawaii, and it wasn't a state at the time. Okay, that's all I can tell you. Did, did he just get like grandfathered in for citizenship there? Or? If it was a territory, yeah. I'm sure he would have been in territory. Well, for, you're automatically uh, right. Yeah, and it was also you know his dad was in the Navy. It was the you know I was going to say in, he was military. stationed at Pearl Harbor, so it was like a yeah. January third of 1959 for Alaska. Yep, just look at that. It was the 40, 49th, and then. So, yeah, I wonder if, so, the Federal Highway Funding Act, that was 56? Yeah. <clears throat> All right. That, so, I, I wonder if that has anything to do with it. But, I mean, then again, I mean, there are highways that are federally funded in Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico is still not a state, obviously. So Yeah. When there could have just been such a sparse population in Alaska, given when it uh, achieved statehood, that they just didn't really think that would be necessary. That's totally possible. Probably even yeah. to this day. <laughs> yeah, because I'm pretty sure, I mean, I couldn't tell you exactly, but it, I'm pretty sure the Alaska highway system is pretty uh, pretty sparse. It is. It's like Fairbanks to Anchorage, and there's like pretty much a loop there. And then um, there isn't really a road that goes down along the Alaskan coastline in southeast Alaska. That's just not really possible. It's too much of a fjord area. Mm -hmm. So if you're trying to go from Alaska to, like, say, <clears throat> Seattle... You're gonna go through Canada. There's no, there's no way around it, or or by boat or plane. Ice road truck. Shout out Discovery. Shout out Discovery. <laughs> New sponsor. <laughs> the Discovery Channel. <laughs> um, <laughs> now, I, it would fit. I might as well mention just since it's in my notes. Just like Hawaii, the Alaska ones are A one, two, three, and four, and Puerto Rico is PR one, PR two, and PR three. That makes sense. Nice. Uh, the final little bit I have is just some statistics. I'm going to cherry pick right now the the best ones. Uh, heaviest traveled is I-405 in 
Los Angeles with 374,000 vehicles per day. Which honestly like seems low. To terrible. Me, that, well, that was like a low. 2006 estimate, I believe. 2008. 2008. Good call, John. But um, why don't you stay in your lane, pal? <laughs> <laughs> the, but a disconnect. Dang. Yeah. Now yeah. the the highest elevation is the Eisenhower Tunnel at the Continental Divide in the Colorado Rocky Mountains. The lowest is 52 feet below sea level in Sealy, California. That does not include the lowest underwater interstate, which is I-95 in the Fort McHenry Tunnel under the Baltimore Inner Harbor. Hello, Dan. There it is. Interesting. Um, <clears throat> Going to rapid fire the other ones. Sure. Longest east-west is I-90, Boston to Seattle, and that's 3,020 miles. Longest north-south is I-95 from the Canadian border in Maine to Miami, Florida, which is 1,908 miles. I-90, the most states served by an interstate. Well, I wanted I- to, see, I wanted to uh, ask the guys this, because I'm okay. pretty much on the same Wikipedia section as you here, Ken. Yeah. So I-95 serves the most interstates. Let's go, uh, let's go Price is Right rules here. How many states do you think I-95 services? You're over, you're out. Price is right. Well, <clears throat> what'd you say, Greg? 13. One state, 13, Bob. Okay. Uh, 13. No way. 11. Paul? Paul Weezer, come going, on down. I'm going one state. Oh, excuse Gre- me. That was Greg. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 15 oh. states and plus the District of Columbia. Son of a bitch. Go ahead and read them off, John. Yeah. You got Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina. Virginia, Washington, D.C., Maryland, Delaware, Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Maine. So the entire eastern seaboard. Not Vermont, though. Not Vermont. I did not expect it to take that (laughs) much of a turn in Rhode Island. I thought it would angle right on through past. Wow. Well, nobody ever remembers Delaware. Yeah. Yeah. Except Delaware, Delaware sucks. Except I've always liked the the name of Dover. I do like that. Mm-hmm. Rolls off the top yeah. nice. Dover, go to, Delaware. Go to, the, go, go to the English one. It's better. It probably isn't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now, the, other, the last one I want to say, uh, John, you can pipe up with more if you want. There's most interstates in a state, and that's 32 routes, and that's New York. But the one I'm most interested in is most primary interstates in a state. What state do you think has the most primary interstates in it? Bonus points if you can guess how many. California, seven. Uh, okay. I'm, oh, that's a good one. That's a really yeah. good one, Dan. I'm going to – I want to say Texas just based off size. Okay. I don't think it is. I'm going to say also seven. Okay. Greg? Say Florida, six. Okay. It is Illinois with 13. Oh. Crossroads oh, of America. Now, Paul, it's, to your credit, the most interstate mileage in any state is in Texas with 3,233 yeah. miles of interstate. We felt a lot of those miles personally. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, we've we seen most did. of them. Yeah. And I got to say, even though we haven't done, I, 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 we didn't do every single mile of I 35 because we didn't go into Houston proper, really, or at all. We went to, um, outside of there. But we also left from cra- Iowa. Kinda, yeah. But I'm just saying, 
I, I mean, I've gone from Iowa all the way to its terminus in Minnesota mm. several times. And I've driven all the way almost down to Oh, so you've Germany. almost just, been on all of 35 is what you're saying. Yeah, that's what I'm getting at. Like, okay. there's like only maybe 50, 40 or 50 miles down in Texas I haven't touched. But kind of crazy to think about Yeah, that's that, pretty but. incredible. If you got a country song there. 40, well, 50 miles down in Texas. <laughs> um, 40, 50 hey. miles. I ain't. Uh, sorry, Paul, before you hit, hit us with your next um, curiosity. Uh, I'm going to use the bathroom. Wow. Quick. Okay, Paul. Very funny. Hit us with a fucking okay. fact, would you? So there you are, driving down the road. And you, you see a larger and you see a s- yeah. <laughs> no, you, you see, see a sign. It says something, but you have to double take as to what it says, and then you read <clears throat> the largest. Excuse me, the world's largest collection of the world's smallest version of the world's largest things. <laughs> You're like, what? Wait a minute. And then you flip a Yui. <laughs> you flip a Yui, and you turn around, and you go to it. And I'll read it again. And my question for you is. Where is this? And and there's no context, so it's all just pure guess. But it is the world's largest collection of the world's smallest version of the world's largest things. <laughs> go ahead. Where's that? For comedic Where value, are... for comedic value, I'm going to have to go ahead and guess uh, Dinky Town in Minneapolis. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Rhode Island. I will go with Ohio. Okay. Dang. They're desperate Dang. there. <clears throat> For one, I really like Ohio. And I like another state for the same reason, so I'm going to say Florida. Oh, I think Minnesota is the closest. It's in Lucas, Kansas. Wow. Dude, fuck Kansas. First, could you <laughs> let, me, let me tell you what my thinking was? Because you said the sure. largest collection of the smallest versions of the largest things. Correct. So I was thinking this is like some sort of planetarium or like they've got like planets and all this stuff like small versions mm. and i liked ohio because the most astronauts are from ohio so i'm sure there's like oh, space so you're thinking museums. like kennedy space oh. yeah or, I, or I, kennedy. I, was, I was thinking more along the like line of like submarines oh and okay like man-made things or like maybe like a small scale version of the eiffel tower like wow. bridges my guess would have been texas but, like, it's almost the opposite of that, of, like, everything's bigger in Texas, but it's the opposite of... small version. This, yeah. The smallest version of everything. Everything's smaller in Just, Kansas. Everything is smaller in Kansas. Um, oh, that's, that's pretty good. But, yes, this collection was started by Erica Nelson as a hobby and eventually permanently established in 2017. She began her collection after visiting several world's largest, like this... Pistachio, ball of yarn, <laughs> yeah, you name the it. Pistachio, <laughs> yeah, the famous pistachio. It's all coming together here, Paul. I love it. <laughs> um, and, and she was wishing there were many souvenirs to take home of said thing, uh, but there weren't. So she began making her own and eventually became a world's largest itself. <clears throat> so, so, wait, you mean um, this is like she's got a gift shop where it's little pocket sized versions of things like the world's largest yarn ball or like. Correct. That's what it is. Donuts. Yeah. So so yes, yeah. go ahead, say say that title three times fast, and then we'll we'll be able to finish the podcast. <laughs> Couldn't you just like <laughs> buy plastic versions of real things? Like like you said, like the world's largest donut, just buy a plastic donut and that's Yep. 
That's a miniature that's version. I said it's the, same the thing. biggest grift. Yeah, but that's dude. yeah. If you yeah, guys that's too easy though. If you guys could have a world's largest collection of something, what would you want your collection to be of? Love this question. Money. Wow. I'll give you a real answer. Let me think. I've got two I've sworn between. Really tough. Yeah, this is a good question. Should I go ahead and say uh, the two I'm thinking? Yeah, sure. I'm Mm -hmm. thinking it'd be cool uh, Hot Wheels or baseball cards. See, Mm. I was thinking along like the kind of hobby like that, like. Like not that I'm into it, but like, like Pokemon cards are worth so fucking much yeah. nowadays. I thought of a cool um, one. What if you had the largest collection of meteorites, like actual like meteoritic Ooh. iron that it landed? That's, <clears throat> That's pretty sweet. I like that one. I like a lot. that. I'm having a tough time. I don't I know. Got, How about like there's presidential a lot of election that. buttons or something like that. I like that. That's that's a I cool mean, like, like historical one. Like yeah. firearms would be cool. Cars would be cool. Say, That's a my, great, my, you know, my two those would be two Greg yeah. ones. My yeah. two for sure would be AK-47s <laughs> or, for, or, for, or Ferraris. Or Ferraris. <laughs> yeah, those yeah, would be the yeah. two. Or or at least maybe we'll go like F1 cars. That'd be even cooler. See, so yeah. Maybe cool. lots of manufacturers. That's definitely a Greg answer. I could see you ending up with like the world's largest collection of like hubcaps. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's gotta be tacky it can't be cool it has to be yeah. tacky i don't think i've ever owned a hubcap <laughs> i had a car that had hubcaps and i took them off <laughs> good that was a good pit stop paul that's, thank that's you. pretty good yeah thank you paul i like These that are yeah. shaping up nicely all right and we're taking off who's next who's yeah, driving me yeah it's <laughs> <laughs> good from here on out, we just become a, a interstate-themed podcast, and everything we say is a, a pun See, or metaphor. The listeners don't know Me. that we're actually in a car right now driving. Yeah. But <laughs> Chinese we have been for the last time we year and a half. Paul, will you hand me those flaming Hot Cheetos? <laughs> oh, yeah. Sure. Toss that right over. Paul, uh, whoa. Every time Paul. we have a guest on, we got to hey. loop through. Yeah. Okay, it's, it's not <laughs> like we're all drinking either. Let's go pick them up. I swear we're not all drinking. It's, it's, our, it's all right. We're in Missouri. <laughs> Oh, well, I was about to. Uh, I was about to throw some words at Paul for drinking summer shandy this early in the year. Oh, well, well you can't blame hey, a guy. No. It, it was. He, it was like eighty something today. Yeah. Yeah, he's in the south. Oh, that's man. right. Fuck, you're in the Where south. Where are you at, Paul? Okay. Uh, yeah. It was eighty in Philly today too. Holy Damn. shit! Oh, heat wave. Yeah. We got to like fifty four, yeah. and I was <laughs> loving it. Paul, as much as you yeah. can admit with your classification, where do you live now? Um. Uh, uh, well, uh, <laughs> the eastern yeah, seaboard, the southeast <laughs> United States, uh, in Dislo- <laughs> or, uh, Valdosta, Georgia. It's basically a swamp. Georgia, South boy. Georgia, South Georgia. Yeah, it's like thirty miles north of the Florida Georgia line. <laughs> when do uh, peaches come into season? I don't know. I've been like, I've been waiting. I like when I, I think I was here for all of like ten minutes. I saw like my first cotton field, and it was like right in town. I was like, "What Whoa. the hell? They still grow that?" It's like, <laughs> well, they got it like, somehow. They got that. Yes, they still grow that. Yes. <laughs> but I was like, "Wow, that's like." All right, Dan, you ready to bum us all out? Yeah, sorry. This is what we have to end. Up. Well, we'll end on Paul's third pit stop. So hopefully that brings <laughs> us back up. Uh, well, I was gonna say I still have. Uh, 
the disaster. If yeah, you Paul's talk got about another disaster to really send us. Ah, uh, so, Okay. Yeah. Well, this is the one-two punch to end it all. Officially changed so, the name of the podcast to Highway Historians. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to Dan bums us all out. So I'm going to talk about the darker side. Uh, one of the darker <laughs> sides, I guess, <laughs> of the interstate system. Um, similar to other like publicly funded federal programs, the people with the most political power got to basically make all the decisions, of course, right? As far as like where and how the interstates were built. Now, on a grand scale, as we've talked about, the interstates connected major cities and hype, uh, helped, quote unquote, revitalize major city centers, which is true. I'm going to talk a little bit about the cost, the human cost to that. When you zoom in to examine what happened to some individual communities because of this, uh, you can you can see that the negative effects of the interstate, uh, as again, if you study any part of history, disproportionately affected black communities within cities. There's also probably, this is a little parenthetical that I have, there's probably a discussion to be had about how interstates also hurt rural communities. It just sort of dawned on me as I was reading about this. I didn't really look into it. But, I mean, I just thought, like, rural communities rely on the land, and now you have the federal government using a huge amount of land to build and then maintain these interstates. I thought, throughout studying history, you sort of see, like, this is often the case. Like inner city community woes are often like hand in hand with like poor rural community woes. Um, just a random side note that I thought of, but I digress. So you're saying all lives matter? Oh, Jesus <laughs> <Christ>. <laughs> <laughs> wow, Dan, not very, uh, not very you progressive. Could, uh, uh, you could rephrase that as all poor lives matter. Just to just Best to defend to myself, yeah. yeah, just skip it. Just go right into it. <laughs> yeah, just, just skip right over that. One. So, so interstates. If you zoom into like an individual city, you see interstates oftentimes connected suburbia to downtown commercial and financial districts. That's often that was part of the state and local plans when they chose where these interstates would go. And it's because suburbia was booming. Post-World War II, there were home loans and all these things, like the American dream about owning a home. That was to be found in suburbia, but people still needed to work in the cities. And so the interstates were used to like bridge the gap, how to let people live in suburban neighborhoods but still work in downtown cities. The problem comes with communities like in between those two destinations, in between suburbia and your sort of like well-off financial like business districts, which it just if you look at a map of any city is going to be like a usually typically poorer black community. Um, So I have a couple of examples. So Paradise Valley and Black Bottom in Detroit are these two neighborhoods that like historically in the 1910s, 20s, 30s, even like through the depression into the 40s were some very like thriving black communities. This is one of the communities that was like torn up and split up 
by one of the interstates. So the interstate that I'm talking about here is I-75. Here's, here's a quote from an article from The Independent. It said, I-75 sent wide lanes and off-ramps right through the heart of Paradise Valley and Black Bottom. Hastings Street is now a... Hastings Street, which was like the main street of those neighborhoods, became a frontage road leading to the interstate. So that's kind of like the type of sort of like demolition that you get when building these interstates through these communities. The, to, to sort of, I don't know, symbolize like the degradation, uh, the Detroit Historical website says, Paradise Valley was <laughs> the business district and entertainment center of a densely populated African-American residential area from the 1920s through the 1950s. So kind of like the history of that neighborhood is just kind of done when the interstate comes through. Another sort of additional downer is that when these types of construction projects were planned and the neighborhood neighborhoods were identified of like where they would cut through, sometimes local governments helped people relocate. And that's where you get a lot of like the project housing that was built in the 50s and 60s because you would have interstate that you would need to level hundreds of homes and businesses in order to build because you can't you can't build something like that through a town without that sort of demolition so residents of paradise valley back in the 1950s were relocated to an area known as the 12th street area back in 1967 sort of like the summer that everything burned down where there were like riots in every city that was home to like one of the bloodiest, deadliest, most violent riots of that entire year, which as a year it had a reputation. And then like the 12th street area in Detroit sort of took that to another level. Um, so it, it, you can kind of see like the after effects of this sort of like public policy, literally like cutting neighborhoods out or in half. Another example um, I think it's pronounced Al Albina. Albina in Portland, Oregon. In 1960, about 3,000 people lived in Albina, mostly African American. And in 1962, I-5 was routed directly through the middle of Albina. So basically, what happens is like these neighborhoods, you kind of just cross them out, make two different neighborhoods, right? Rename the two halves, and just cut it down the middle with the interstate. Um, so about 300 homes were demolished. And in this case, in Albina, they weren't replaced. So no project housing was built. They just kind of like paid people and said, see ya. So, you know, you take, a pop, you take the population out of a place and you take the life out of a place, right? You took 300 homes worth of people out of a neighborhood. What do you think that's going to do to a neighborhood? Yeah, it definitely hurts the morale and character, yeah. I would say, of a place. Not exactly surprising that Oregon, especially in like the 60s, would do something like that. Oregon doesn't exactly have a shining history as far as racial uh, equality goes. <laughs> yeah, especially I don't know sure. if I can think of anybody that has, anywhere that has a shining history of... You know, <laughs> I'm just saying, like, I mean, Oregon was started as a place that was like, let's just keep them out, you know? Yeah. yeah. That, was their, that was their whole thing. So not really surprised that especially in like the 60s that Oregon would do something like that. 
especially with the the whole not replacing the housing thing. Like at least Mich- at least in Michigan, they built some ha- some project housing. That's at least some sort of an olive branch to to the destruction that they caused, you know. But or Oregon doing nothing to help the people that they destroyed the homes of, other than probably paying them pennies on the dollar for what their land and houses were worth, you know. Like that's that's pretty terrible. Mm-hmm. Dan, if just before you get off, if you move to something that is dissimilar from talking about communities that were messed up, let me know because I actually have a very good example of it. Ooh, okay. Yeah, I have three examples, and then I was going to talk a little bit about Robert Moses, like a brief aside. All right, hit me after so, number three. One quote that kind of stuck out to me was from this guy, James Marston Fitch, from the New York Times. He was an architect, sort of like a land surveyor type of guy, um, and he wrote for the New York Times, and he has this quote talking about the automobile, like what the car culture, so to speak, did to these communities. He said, the automobile has not merely taken over the street. It has dissolved the living tissue of the city. Its appetite for space is absolutely insatiable. Moving and parked, it devours urban land, leaving buildings as mere islands of habitable space in a sea of dangerous and ugly traffic. Wow. Fantastic. I agree. I like it. Yeah. Because, I mean, if you've ever, like, let's not even talk about, like, downtowns of cities. If you've ever just been in, like, the neighborhood where there's an on-ramp or an off-ramp to a highway, it's, like, the worst. Yeah, like, it's, it's all so ugly. Hotels and gas stations and uh, fast food. and The traffic is always so bad. <laughs> you know, the roads are decayed because they're driven on constantly. It's the worst. Even as an auto enthusiast, like, and somebody who very much appreciates, <laughs> sorry, like, no, no, like, that's what I'm saying is that even though, like, I'm a huge car nut, and like the the freedom that vehicles provide you to go wherever you want, whenever you want, that kind of thing, I even even as somebody who loves that kind of thing, I totally understand the absolutely horrific effects, especially in cities that that like vehicles provide and. And that's one of the reasons why, like, if I lived in a, a major city, I think I would probably just accept the risk of death and just ride a motorcycle most of the time instead. <laughs> just because it takes up so much less space and, like, just congestion, especially in, like, places like California and other places where this is a commonplace thing, even if it's not legal, lane splitting is a, a godsend. Being able to just drive between people's cars and get cut through traffic. just And just, like, I hate sitting in traffic. Like, I hate that kind of thing. The thing for me that I love about vehicles is being able to like get out into the, the, the far stretches. Yeah, or, well, yeah, stuff like that, like mountains, that kind of thing. I don't care so much about like driving in cities. If there was, if there was good infrastructure, like, like for example, when I go and visit Chicago, I usually just ride the train when I go there. I just park oh, yeah. and take yeah, the train. Of course, public transport. Yeah, like I, is I hate, I hate driving in cities. Mm-hmm. And and I would, and even as an audio enthusiast, I would much rather see public tra- uh, public. Uh, like public transportation infrastructure blossom. That'd be so much better. Now, Dan, uh, Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to. No, you go. Uh, I have a question I want to pose, uh, kind of related to your first point there and kind of tied back into the overall discussion of interstates. Uh, I want you guys to find your thoughts and share them with me. Do you think the interstate system itself has kind of led to the demise of 
like a small town USA. In a way, yeah, just because like there were so many, the highways were so dispatched that you would end up just going through a bunch of like, what is it? Is it like Sac City or something where it's like the crossroads of, mm-hmm. or even like uh, like yeah. Route sixty six? I mean, you know, I was yeah. gonna say sixty six was like the iconic. Yeah, it like definitely route did. that's now never used. Yeah, no shame. I definitely thought of this because of the movie Cars. <laughs> sure, oh, yeah, okay. for sure, <laughs> for sure. Oh, Radiator yeah. Springs. <laughs> yeah, but like also that too, like those small like towns and stuff like that. Like, like a lot of them, they'd they'd rather have it that way, versus having like an interstate cut through their town. Yeah, you know, so they'd rather have like no outsiders. Ver, you know, versus having like way too much traffic. But I think uh, I think to counter that argument, I would say having people coming through the town is a breath of fresh air. I mean, that's outside business. Uh, oh, for sure. Perspective, new residents, even you know. Yeah, I can only speak for like like Montana, like even Great Falls, where I was at, which is like about the size of Ames, like they wanted the small town feel so bad. That they like refused like to like let certain fast food restaurants even oh, wow. build Jackson was in the, the same area because because they wanted to stick to like kind of like that like old school small town feel local business but I mean ha- yeah but half their population were people in the military from all across the world mainly from big cities mm-hmm. so it's like a battle mm-hmm. um, so it depends where you're at I guess case by case. To answer, to answer your question, John, I think, like, I mean, the cities that end up along those routes and definitely end up benefiting from it, from the traffic, too, like, which is why you see cities that, like, same thing with, like, railroad towns that we talked about, yeah. like, talking about our Magnate series, like, towns that have major connections like that grow, and, like, I know that, um, like, for example, the railroad connection for the Transcontinental Railroad, they considered putting it through Sioux City instead of Omaha, and the reason they went through, like... Omaha ended up growing the size that it did was largely because of that railroad connection. Right. And then eventually, and then eventually I 80 as well. But on the flip side of that, yeah, I absolutely think that the small town stuff is something that people miss a lot. And that's why I literally go out of my way often to take the road. That's not the suggested route, the road less traveled. Like (sighs) exactly. I mean, like for example, like I went up to sell something in Fort Dodge, like, you know, sometime last year and if I have the time and I'm not in a rush to get home and I don't have anything to do, like I will, I will take the most backwoods, like curvy, you know, drive along rivers, hit small towns kind of route I possibly can because I like finding stuff like that. Yeah. And Sell sometimes something you, he says, pardon. <laughs> One, uh, a very fun Sell route, uh, a very fun route to take from Des Moines up to Ames. Uh, you, you pretty much just go through Granger, like head north through. I can't remember which highway number it is, but it's so much more scenic than just taking 35. I mean, obviously, oh, yeah. 35 is going to be king because of convenience. You know, you can get to Ames for, in, in like 30 minutes. And that's why everybody uses the interstate. I think we can boil mm-hmm. it down to so yeah. convenience, yep. higher speed limit. Dude. But I think there is something to, be say, uh, something to be said for the more scenic route, you know. Well, and uh, John, I guess to your point, that's like, yeah, do that. Do the scenic route if you're going on a road trip. But like, you know, if you're going to work, if you have the time to, the yeah, yeah, yeah. Is be <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You know? Well, I mean, like, to quote Ferris if, Bueller, life's uh, life goes pretty fast. If you, uh, if you don't stop and look around every once in a while, you might miss it. You might miss it. You might just miss it. 
Dan, do you have do you have another? I have one more example, and I got to do it for Paul. Okay. So, the one more neighborhood that sort of has become like very prominent as far as like telling their story. This you know sixty seventy year story of like rebounding from you know damage of interstates is the Rondo neighborhood in Minneapolis St Paul, which actually doesn't exist anymore. Um, I'm going to show you guys a picture. I'm going to share my screen here. All the listeners, just to use your imagination. Yeah. Oh, Try sorry, to visualize what Dan the... might be showing us right now. Well, I imagine it's really any number <laughs> of things it could be. I imagine uh, we'd be putting one or two of these on the Instagram. So this map is uh, this is terrible because I have the Zoom extension on. Um, so the green line there, cutting across the middle, that is I ninety four. Yep. Overlaid with a map from nineteen thirty five called what's it called Natural Natural Areas, and if you look real close you can see like the brown areas in the northeast you can see labels of like slum mm-hmm. in the pink and Uh-oh. the red you, those are like does downtown say, what is that oh no does that say the word i think it says it does yeah uh, so so the not gonna yeah. say on that one on air folks <laughs> yeah use so your imagination another area if there's yeah. a word we wouldn't say what might it be and and then there's like the like down bottom left the the or like the gold area that's literally called like the gold coast and then north of that is working men's homes. So you can see, like, how they judged yeah. these neighborhoods. And you can see exactly, like, right where the interstate goes through is that neighborhood that you guys keep mentioning. Yeah. yeah. And be, be mindful that, like, on your map, too, it says 1935. Mm-hmm. So it is Yeah, but that's when they were doing this, Oh, like, yeah, nobody's quite Planning, I mean, this, you know. The survey, yep. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> And and it's not like these views really changed because it's not like anybody in those like neighborhoods that are that are painted brown were able to move out because we know of like the history with the correct Fair Housing Act and stuff like that. They weren't getting yeah. home loans to move out. No. So so that's the first picture I wanted to show you that sort of like zoning map. Um, at least half the city's black community lived in the Rondo neighborhood. And basically, the I-94 interstate was built to connect downtown St. Paul, which is what you're seeing on the map, and downtown Minneapolis. And, and one of the neighborhoods that it cut right through is Rondo. Now, I'm going to show you a picture of the actual interstate when it was finished. So, so basically, what happened here, the, I'll give you the stats, to build this stretch of the interstate, more than 600 homes and 300 businesses were demolished. Wow. So, like, what you see here, and the interstate is, like, dug into the ground. So there yep. are bridges spanning over the interstate. That, that used to all be residential and, like, commercial zoning. Wow. Pretty much exactly the same as downtown Des Moines. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. And um, just, a, just a random side note, this probably won't end up in the Instagram, but, like, nowadays people are talking about, like, how to fix it, right, how to reconnect the two sides of the community. And one of the ideas is like this sort of land bridge where you build on top or like over the interstate. Big fan of that idea. That right. Really you basically, cool, yeah. yeah, you basically make a tunnel. Yeah. yeah. It's a lot better than bridges, you know. And the, and the best part about that is that you could 
it, like unlike tunnels where you have to dig them through the ground, this you could build the concrete structure around the existing road mm-hmm. and then cover it. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. That's a really novel idea. Yeah, I mean, so who wouldn't like some more green space? True. Yeah. Well, as long as they can keep up with it too, you know, because we'll get to bridges in a second, but like yeah. <laughs> something like that, like you know, when you're talking about homes and oh, stuff like that, not, you're you're not too far away. Doing, you know, you're dealing with a lot of lives. You know, when you're talking about that. Yeah. Okay. Kane, uh, you want it? You you said you got an example. Yeah, I'll be quick. I, I forgot that you still have something, and then Paul has the bridge. So I have like a two minute thing. You're gonna... um, I also have one example after you, Kane. Quick one. I want to give you a little history of Sioux City, Iowa, if I may. Oh, jeez. So, okay. <laughs> you'll be surprised how well it fits. Um, <laughs> Uh, Sioux City used to be a very prominent meatpacking city. That was like the major industry for a long time. And there was a neighborhood that is no longer there that I did. I didn't even think about this until you started talking, Dan. I did a project on this in high school. There's a neighborhood that used to be called the South Bottoms. And it was a very poor neighborhood. And it was where the people who worked in the meatpacking industry lived. And it was like, you know white, black, brown, just poor people that worked in the meatpacking plant. It was an incredibly friendly community. But the problem was it was right on the Floyd River, and the Floyd River at that time was kind of like it flooded a lot. And that, that's still a problem, but, like, it, it kept flooding, and not much would be done because it was a very poor neighborhood, you know, and it was like the 40s, 50s. Uh, it would flood again and again, and then there was a very bad flood, and... They were just like, well, let's just get rid of the whole neighborhood and we will instead build Interstate 92 through there and then also just rechannel the Floyd River through there so that doesn't happen anymore. Wow. But they basically raised the entire neighborhood. And it was one of those, like, like you said, eminent domain where they just gave them money. It was just like... Yeah. We're taking your land. We'll pay you for it. It's totally legal. Here you Half go. Price. Stop yeah. eminent yeah. domain abuse. Yeah. You know you know. <laughs> yeah. We all seen that one. You know. uh, Kane? Yeah. Uh, not calling you wrong or anything. Was it originally called 92 or did you transpose 29? I did. I transposed 29. Sorry. Okay. All right. Just, just clarification. All right. Gotcha. You, we'll see. And that is, that's happened a lot because I used to live very close to 92 when I lived in Wyoming. Ah, uh, that makes so sense. So I always mix those up. Gotcha. I just, like, I mean, like, a lot of highways did get renamed from when they were originally created to when they became part of the interstate highway system, so I was curious if that was just a name change or not. No, so. I, I've done that so many times. Okay. Right. Yeah, works. and then quick add, too. Like, a lot of that happened with military bases as well. So, like, if they didn't span from, like, old Confederate bases... Um, I can only speak really to Air Force bases. Like, they put them in kind of, you know, wherever the cheapest land was. And a lot of that was in the lower income, like, neighborhoods and stuff like that. So, like, you'll find in, like, San Antonio, it's Lackland is in the south side of San Antonio, where you have a lot of lower income neighborhoods and stuff like that, too, because they just eminent domained all that area into an Air Force base. Same thing in, like, Tacoma, you know, in at McCord out in Washington. They put it in Tacoma, you know, lower income housing. So, like, you don't see a lot of, like, at le- very least Air Force bases, maybe some naval stations, too, in, 
nice neighborhoods mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, no one wants all the, you know, the loud aircraft near all the rich neighborhoods. They want, you know, they want to keep those away. So just kind of like correlation with that, too. Good yeah. old lack. Good old Lackland, home of the ten-year-old stricken Lone Star. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't that was right next to Lackland, right? Um, just just a few words about Robert Moses, just because he he affected a lot more than like the New York City metropolitan area. He what he did in and around New York City was very much like earned him a reputation that he did a lot of like suggesting and consulting on this interstate work. So, so uh, some insight on the type of guy that he was can also explain a little bit about like why the communities that were, you know, uh, that were affected were affected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. So it's because he's crazy. Uh, he okay. Did a lot of good stuff and is also just a douche. So <laughs> he he worked for like three decades in and around New York city in like a bunch of different public works positions and then leading the MTA, the metropolitan transportation Association, blah, blah, blah. And just to give you a sense of like how he viewed freeways, he said one time in 1954, he said, quote, you must go right through cities and not around them. When you're operating with an overbuilt metropolis, you have to hack your way with a meat ax. Yeah. So to add to your image of this man as well and give you a sense of like the general mentality around public works, it was a very, yeah. So here's another quote that I found interesting. He said one time, quote, because he came under a lot of criticism for, for what he was doing to these communities and what his counterparts were doing with the interstate. And he said, quote, I raise my stein to the builder who can remove ghettos without moving people as I hail the chef who can make omelets without breaking eggs. Okay. So very calloused, you know, (laughs) no kidding, man. (laughs) And, and I just include these two quotes because really this sort of mentality was widespread. This was a mentality that drove the, the local politics part of building the interstate system this ideology that was very top down that was federal state governments saying here's the plan here's who benefits by the way we like car sales because they drive a lot of tax revenue and public transportation doesn't so we're going to build these highways because we want people to live in suburbs we want them to drive cars and pay for gas and pay the gas tax the end yeah definitely it seems like one of those uh they're really just looking at, I mean, because you, you could argue uh, in his favor that the interstate system is for the greater good. But usually uh, people in a position of power like that, they don't stop and think about the common man. No way. You know, that they're displacing <clears throat> sure. and totally changing their lives, yeah, which is grand, a sad reality. Yeah. It's all grand it's all scheme signs. for them. Yeah. yeah. Definitely a, a darker side. To pretty much everything. Oh, yeah. That's why I'm here. <laughs> Hope I get the invite back. <laughs> Dang. That's all I got. I'm washing my hands. Okay. So I'm going to make a, a power move here. So rather than making a pit stop, rest stop rather, we're just going to power through. 
Kane, you're going to have to pee you know, in that Gatorade a, bottle. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. find a Gatorade <laughs> bottle. Um, you know, don't think about running water. We're just going to power through to our next uh, kind of also sad topic. Just It was a tragedy, but um, hopefully opened the eyes to a lot of um, more progress when it comes to the interstate system and our infrastructure. But um, Just real quick before you even say what it is. I guess, John, sure. you're going to be kind of out, out, out in the dark, but do you remember this happening? Do you guys remember this happening? Yes. I remember I watching the, like, CNN coverage of it. My my cousins lived nearby at the time yeah. and had driven on the bridge mm-hmm. the day prior, were so were oh. very freaked out. Jeez. That's scary. Paul, why don't you tell us what it is? So I'm going to cover the I-35 West Mississippi River Bridge Collapse. So uh, the I-35 Bridge was an eight-lane steel trussle arch bridge located in Minneapolis, Minnesota. It first opened in 1967 and quickly became Minnesota's third busiest bridge, carrying 140,000 cars daily. God. So about half of that Los Angeles statistic you said earlier, Kane, which, again, that seems so low for L.A., but... Kind of does, yeah. I digress. Um, But on August 1st, 2007, the bridge collapsed, killing 13 people and injuring 145 others. So a safety safety board, obviously, was had. Um, They reviewed the collapse, noted that the gusset plates which gusset plates are basically just these plates that connect beams and girders and then also beams and girders to concrete columns. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically the connections of all the, the yeah, I-beams and like stuff like that. kind of... Basically. Um, they said they were too thin and that they eventually ripped over time. Um, later, I'll, I'll mention two. I think they mentioned that were eight specifically that were bowed and then you know over, over time and weight they just gave away. So they ripped over time, um, and then also uh, on August 1st, it happened during rush hour traffic, uh, which obviously didn't help with extra weight, um, but surprisingly, they closed down four lanes, so it was down to four-lane traffic, but they had um, 261 tons of construction equipment because they were resurfacing oh, no. the, the roadway. Yes. Bummer. So... Um, but the biggest problem with this bridge collapse was the neglect over time. So in 1990, basically from the nineties up until 2007, every single year they did a review of the, I guess, structural integrity of the bridge. But in 1990, uh, the bridge was given a structurally deficient rating due to corrosion in its bearings. What was that year again? 1990. Ooh, <laughs> jeez. So roughly 17 years prior. Yeah. Or, you know, already structurally deficient. A lot of time to do something about that. (laughs) Yes. Um, And and then at that, so in 2007, kind of getting ahead of all the the years of neglect, in 2007, when this bridge collapsed, how many bridges in the United States do you think were labeled as structurally deficient? Can't even begin to guess. Oh, jeez. Ten. Tens, tens of thousands. I'm gonna say that twenty-seven thousand. Whoa, hold on. How many bridges are well, there oh, in the country? Uh, there's a lot. There <laughs> a lot is a lot. Like we're talking me, um, even like. Are there, we'll, we'll do prices right. I've we'll do prices right. Go ahead. Seven. So, 
<laughs> You've seen seven. If, all right, seven it, total. Obviously, <laughs> no not that many. Not obviously not that many interstate bridges, but well, no, um, this is just bridges, though. Yeah, but ten, I'd say tens of thousands at least. Give me a number. Price is right. Thirty thousand. Thirty thousand. Okay, next. Give me twelve five, Paul. <laughs> Give me nine. Oh. Not is it nine thousand? Yeah. Yes. 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 Nine thousand and twelve thousand five hundred. Yes. <laughs> okay. 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 Just checking. <laughs> Dan, what'd you say? Twenty-seven. Thirty. Okay. Whoa, so it's Greg, you just guessed again, oh Greg. My God. No, he said Jeez. that earlier. Yeah. So it's seventy-five thousand bridges <laughs> were labeled structurally deficient. So that's not even all of them. Are you kidding? Me? No. Um, Okay, I was wrong Too about this one, know. guys. I'm sorry. Mag- by rate. magnitude of <laughs> about eight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. It, it's be, crazy. Dan, Dan would be in real trouble if every single bridge is structured. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it's it's honestly, that's probably worse now, too. Yeah, just I imagine. like the way we treat infrastructure. But in 2001, um, some UN students, basically civil engineer students, were studying the bridge. They discovered cracking in some of the cross girders. This continued in subsequent inspections, finding more cracks and identifying that they were that, that also there were few redundancies that if a truss did fail, so basically like, you know, if a girder or anything like did break and fail, that it would just completely collapse. That like there's no other backup, you know, yeah. like a structure or weight that I've got a weird feeling that, that might have happened. I'm sorry, uh did you say <laughs> right. UM, I like, guess in like uh University of Minnesota? Okay, I for a yeah. second, uh, I thought you said UN, like United Nations. <laughs> oh, <laughs> my mind was like, is there like some, some college students. of the United Nations, like would, the most prestigious? prestigious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the best. The yeah. global the, the university. Ins- the bridge inspectors. <laughs> <laughs> we are here to. <laughs> the Azerbaijan inspectors. They are here to check your goods. <laughs> In 2005, the bridge received a 50 out of 100 on a sufficiency rating scale. Uh, do note that's not good. Uh, only four. <laughs> so, only sorry. It's on the bottom end of F. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yes, basically, only four yeah. percent. Only four percent of bridges scored below a fifty wow. in the entire United States. I, I'm I'm kind of curious about that uh, that grading system because, like, what would be like a two out of one hundred? Would that be like one <laughs> steel wire still hanging? Yeah, it's too late. Some yeah. dental Half floss four. and some two yeah. by fours. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Walk across. I, I don't know how. I don't know how that. You could walk across, goes, but we recommend but a good leap. Like, yeah, a two is yeah, just a like, zip line. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> no yes. safety equipment is besides yeah. the carabiner. Cross, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You have to build a ramp, and the, yeah. and the carabiner is specifically labeled not for climbing. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um. Later in December 2006, a steel reinforcement project was planned to kind of build up the girders and um, gussets, but that was later canceled the the next month in January 2007 after realizing that if they started drilling into the bridge, it would weaken it further. Oh dear! Which God. to me, that's kind of like a no shit. Like, okay, if you put holes in a bridge, it's gonna weaken, but. 
Also, so how is so, that not the final Yeah, straw? The, the structural integrity <laughs> is that compromised. Why is the bridge just not closed? Yes, eight months earlier. Yeah, exactly. Oh, and that's the kind of theme for this entire thing. It's like, you know, like it's bad. No one should drive on it. But, you know, 140,000 cars a day, that's a lot of cars. Yeah, we're talking about it. cripple Minneapolis to do that. And it did. It absolutely did later on when it did collapse. Um, but at, so like I said earlier, at the time of the collapse, four lanes were closed due to resurfacing, but there were the 261 tons of construction equipment on the bridge. Oh, good. At least they decided to um, repave. Well, and that, that was later in the safety review board too. They later noted as well, um, Where's that note? So post-investigation cited eight gussets failed during the collapse and that added weight from the construction on that day and then also two inches of added concrete to the road surface um, just over time played major factors, which increased the static load by 20%. It's it's like when they forgot to account for the weight of the books when they built a library. Yeah. Like, come on. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's exactly that. Wow. Straight through the basement. <laughs> um so when the bridge did collapse obviously the city and the state of minnesota went to a state of emergency literally everyone was mobilized like the li- it's a laundry list of people even from wisconsin and all, and all over honestly from like first responders and police departments and stuff like that but not only local were involved but um they did mobilize and activate the Minnesota National Guard. They sent in, um, in the subsequent weeks, they sent in Navy divers to go look for the missing people, um, mainly the people that were deceased in the cars that fell in the river. And then also the FBI helped with the investigation. Um, I don't know exactly what their part played, but basically just in the investigation of you know people and where all the... I guess reports went wrong or just neglect in that sense when it came to, you know, all the red flags in that sense. Mm. And then also uh, note, like, the Mayo Clinic uh, had, like, helos going in and out, you know, every minute, (laughs) basically, just assisting with that, all the people that were injured um, and later deceased as well. So, but the state of Minnesota ended up paying... $38 $38 million to compensate the victims of the bridge collapse. And Could have built a new bridge. They did. And I'll get to that in a second. Um, I believe I've driven over it. It's a little, little scary feeling. but uh, Well, uh, there's, there's a fact about it that you know, I'll talk about too. Uh, the state actually sued the original builders um, from 1967. Uh, and it actually went up to the Supreme Court nonetheless. So oh, wow. the original builders... State or federal? They were cl- What's that? State Supreme Court or federal? No, federal. Oh, wow. Like the U.S. Supreme Court. Yep. Um, so the the builders were trying to claim that over, you know, 1967, so almost exactly 40 years, uh, that they can't be held liable for something that was built 40 years ago. That's There's going to be time, wear and tear. Lack of upkeep, a lack of upkeep from the state yeah, that, totally. um, that it's not their fault in a sense. The U.S. Supreme Court did not see that so. They still held them accountable oh, in course. a sense. Um, but well, it, it was 
the design was like deficient from the get-go, right? Correct, because there was no redundancy. It was um, quickly and kind of cheaply built. Um, oh. And I think in some of the CNN, like, uh, I guess report, like, uh, like old videos of like the uh, reporting of the bridge, they said that a lot of other bridges, especially on the East Coast, were built very similarly. But um, the original builders eventually did settle the suit with, without admitting wrongdoing. Um, which I don't necessarily know what that means, but they were uh, forced to pay $8.9 million back to the state. It's a bargain. Um, which say, obviously yeah. went back into, you know, rebuilding the bridge and whatnot, you know, the roads and infrastructure. But the replacement bridge was opened um, the exact same spot. So they built the same exact spot. Obviously, they're, it's um, I-35, so they're not going to try to reroute that at all. But it was opened up in September of 2008. So almost, I mean, that's a year and one month later. Wow. And it was opened on an accelerated schedule, which <laughs> I find to be kind of like... Really, guys? Clenching, yeah. Hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> but but apparently... Right? It's like, oh, man. Like, did we not learn our lesson of like, you know, take your time, make you do it right? <laughs> but, uh, but apparently it's a, a very good bridge. At said by engineers, so I guess we'll take their word as much as we can and won some bridge awards, which whatever that <laughs> fucking means. <laughs> Nerds. I don't know. What, I don't know what a bridge award is, but like they apparently it's a very modern design with a lot better, I guess, research technology and stuff like that too. So probably redundancies. I would imagine uh, probably redundancies, better material, you know, and hopefully the same Minnesota actually keeps up with it well, hopefully those yeah. bridge over, awards over the next 40 years hopefully those bridge awards aren't like a jd power and associates kind of thing yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah participation trophies for building a bridge but God, but that dude. basically covers that that uh bridge collapse yeah it's symbolic though i remember hearing this one story about a bridge sure. near i think it was near pittsburgh and it was like the municipality or state or whatever decided that it would be more cost effective to build a like overhang underneath the bridge to catch falling debris to prevent it from hitting the road below or any cars below rather than replace or repair the bridge above. That's crazy because they do that out in like western states for like rock slides and shit yeah, <laughs> yeah well, no, it's man-made and that's bridges. but it's yeah exactly that's it's, man, it's man-made exactly it's like well, okay that's a good idea actually and and something similar happened with the the dorm towers next to where i live the original so there was four ta- four dorm towers at iowa state for the like the freshman dorms and uh the two towers that are now collapsed like intentionally so storms uh, and the nap two hall. towers demolished the two towers that are now collapsed <laughs> <laughs> yes, the Ames, Iowa, Twin But yeah, there was there was originally four, and they were built Stop by that. they were built by two different two different companies, and the two one the two that are now gone, um, the reason they ended up destroying them was because like chunks of the outside of the building were falling down, nice. and they had to build, and like the year that this was starting to happen. Students were like concerned, of course, so they built like protective tunnels so that you could get far enough away from the building. You wouldn't Jesus. Get um, <laughs> yeah, and then of course, like shortly after they did demolish the towers, but like 
that was like that was what was going on. And of course, the two that were not those two are still standing and being used today. Yeah. I could look out my window right now and see them, even though they were only designed to be used and, for like ten and years. And everybody in this call listen or lived in them. Yes, oh, shout out Wilson Hall lived in them. Twenty thirteen, but well, and Sorry, Paul. worth mentioning, Paul yeah. and I heard uh, from uh, our friend Tom's dad, who lived yep. in Nap and Storms when he was in college. He had two anecdotes about it. One was that they had chicken wire on the ceilings because, like, the ceilings were just like chipping away. Uh, so they had, and those were made of asbestos. Yeah, and yep. he said also that they would sometimes you could just like. Yeah. Yeah. set a marble down on one side of the floor and it would roll <laughs> all the way to the other end of the floor. God, that's so scary. It's really scary how often in engineering it seems the solution that, uh, I mean, whoever makes the judgment calls on that kind of stuff, their solution is really just to basically slap some duct tape on it. Yeah. You know? Pretty much. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll let these kids keep up. living here. Just put some chicken wire up in the yeah. ceiling. and hey, uh, Problem yeah. solved. We're let them breathe that much. We're good for let a few decades. The yeah. Let them breathe the cancer dust. It'll be all right. <laughs> Just put a sign up on the door. Don't throw anything at the ceiling. Yeah, pretty much. Oh my gosh. Yes. And if you watch the videos, the craziest thing to me is like my house was in the in the zone where it was like you had to evacuate. Like, yeah, man. Well, I think it would have been napper storms. Whatever one's closer to my place, the the like foundation of the building probably would have been about 200 feet from where I'm sitting right now. I'm that close. Yeah. So the the chances that the tower, if the implosion had gone wrong, my house could have been completely destroyed. Jesus. That's crazy. So, I didn't live anywhere near here at that point, but kind of crazy. Thing, <laughs> <for sure. laughs> could have been Glad you. they're gone. Yeah. Glad they're well, gone. Uh, anywho, uh, to kind of get back to the interstate talk we were on, I just had a couple of quick tidbits I wanted to mention real quick to some fun facts. Sure. I suppose. Uh, so according to a 2018 uh, report from the Office of Highway Policy Information. Did you guys know that roughly they uh, they estimate one quarter of all vehicle miles driven in this country are driven on the interstate highway system? And that equates oh, out nice. to roughly just under 31 billion gallons of fuel, uh, fuel a year. <laughs> Hell yeah. Wow. That's crazy. It's a lot. Wow. God. That Times is a lot. 18 cents. And then the other thing I wanted to mention, uh, yeah. took me an embarrassingly long time to figure this out. Uh, maybe you guys are aware, maybe you're not. But uh, the numbering system for exits, I used to think it was just completely arbitrary. But uh, it is... Uh, it's mile markers. It's, yeah, it's based off of the mile marker. I learned that at yeah, a much, York, much later age than I would like to admit. Oh, sure. <clears throat> I, I didn't learn that till like... Um, when you could have like GPS on your phone, like Google Maps or Apple, mm -hmm. like, because then you realize, oh, I'm one mile away from exits, whatever. And it's like, oh, that's just plus one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I feel like I put it together once I kind of put together that the exits were like a mile apart, basically. You know, it was like. Well, so I always thought, I always well, thought uh, it was like based on like uh, like say you're driving on 35 North, you're just getting into Iowa. I would think I always thought that mile marker one and whatever that small town is like Lamoni uh, or yeah. uh, I guess exit number one. That was just the first exit in Iowa. And then the right. next exit uh, was just up, like, just, like, it sequentially go through right, the yeah. states. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Like I, I did always think like how convenient, though. 
Like, I, I assume they're rounding, but, like, how convenient every single <laughs> stop is exactly at a mile. See, I didn't realize that was a thing until I left New York because the New York State Thruway, which it also had to be named something different because it's New York, that that is not the case. Uh, to travel from New York City to Quebec to, no, 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 Montreal in Canada, one road, I-87, there are only like 20-something exits. Oh, okay. Yeah. But that's just, th- a, it's a New York, there's like a couple other states that do that BS. Are they not like, you know, mile marker one alpha, one brava, you know, or A, B? No, it's like you hit exit one and then like 20-something miles later, exit two, maybe 30-something oh, miles later, exit three. Oh, that very threw weird. me. Yeah. Huh. So I thought that was a norm, normal thing Unique. until I traveled to other states yeah i guess that's just honed like owed to like how crazy the east coast is when it comes to like transportation like boston like new york like, just but, wants to be different <laughs> but it, but that too like like just all those like east coast cities are just crazy because they're so old and jam-packed like boston like you can't build new roads or highways anymore because there's no you you would literally have to like get rid of neighborhoods, and I think they've realized that's a that's a big no no. And the big dig showed that they don't know how to handle infrastructure projects anyway. So <laughs> that too, I mean, and it takes forever, and it yeah, like obsolete four, once like it gets finished four times, and four times as much money as it was supposed like, to. Like in Milwaukee, I think they canceled the zoo interchange, like in like in like in Milwaukee, like twice. Like they just stopped building it for a while, just because it was like okay. This is taking too long. It's costing too much money. Let's wait a year and then start again. <laughs> it just just because it took, you know, it's crazy how that stuff works. I'll tell you what's yeah. crazy. <clears throat> is it we're, was it we're over two hours? Yeah. If you just look at as how long like our episodes ago. go, it just gets longer and longer <laughs> as we go yeah. forward, dude. And I don't want – we do have one more uh, rest stop, I must add. We're not quite right. at the we're final like, destination. Yeah, 20 miles but, uh, from our final stop. But, yeah, <laughs> yeah. you really need to pee. Yeah, like we really got to go. Please. Yeah, I was going to really say, gotta beef jerky is calling my name. I drank six Sobeys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this is probably the craziest of, uh, of our three stops today. But uh, you, you look outside your right side window and uh, you see Nicholas Cage's pyramid tomb. No way. What? <laughs> what? So I'll say it again. Nicholas Cage's pyramid tomb. Nashville, Tennessee. Final answer. Okay. 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 Well, <laughs> I'll let you. I'll let you guess, and I'll get. Well, I'll, I'll give you a hint. You want a hint for this one or no? Sure. Sure. It's a mausoleum. If that New Orleans. Your New Orleans. Oh, yeah, it's New Orleans. Be New Orleans. Nah, okay. Yeah, yeah. That was too easy of a hint. I shouldn't yeah. have gave it to you. Yep. It's New Orleans, Louisiana. What a crazy so. dude. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's really the moral of the story. Let's just loop back around to Nicolas Cage. <laughs> uh, so he purchased two plots. Uh, he built one, uh, obviously, as an unnamed pyramid tomb for himself when he dies. <laughs> Apparently, that's not like his only like weird kind of spooky. So he's into like some spooky odd things in uh, New Orleans. He bought a legit haunted house 
which was eventually foreclosed to do some tax thing or what he lost it over some tax battle or whatever. Yeah, he had like a bad manager. It was the whole thing. Something like that. Yeah. But uh also <laughs> buried in this graveyard, which again, like apparently it's disputed a little bit too, but what who's buried in this graveyard is Marie Laveau. Ah. Oh. Who is New Orleans' most famous voodoo priestess. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> so Also American Horror Story character. <laughs> it's the only reason I know about her, yeah. Yeah, same. Yeah, true. So, um, yeah, he's, like, got a weird... He's got a weird thing for New Orleans and, like, voodoo and kind of creepy, spooky stuff. Uh, like I said, it's an unnamed tomb. Like, it's his. Yeah. Like, you know, so he may go in there. Who knows? Man's crazy. But the only may, thing that's may written live on, may live forever. May live forever. The only thing that's written on there is uh, a Latin phrase, "Omnia ab uno," which is everything from one. So again, just weird. So it's like almost e pluribus unum, but like <laughs> slight, <laughs> just slightly <laughs> different. It's got to be yeah. Nicholas Cage different. Yeah. So um, a lot of people speculate that it's really just a homage to the national treasure theme oh, of his like of course <laughs> movie famous stuff yeah. you know illuminati stuff you know yeah it's stupid uh, it might be just stupid but uh yes so nicholas cage's pyramid two was our final right. stop thank you paul thank you paul those are nice those I, r- I really like doing those <laughs> <laughs> if you can't tell if you can't yeah. tell those were fun. If Thank you, you look out and your uh, right window, you you went pilot <laughs> voice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'd be a great tour guide. I'll, be, I'll admit. Yeah. Well, and uh, thank you also to John for suggesting the topic and joining us for it. Hey, thanks for having yeah. me. Oh, and for, hey. Can, and for your top-notch questions, John. Can, I gotta can, say. Can, speaking of John's, do we ever hear back about that uh, that poor boy, John? <laughs> the one who sent us the, the letter? Let, yeah, the yeah. letter. Whatever happened to no, all those bones he broke? I don't. I haven't heard from him. Huh. Man, I hope he gets better. I, yeah, That's, I hope he doesn't have uh, a pyramid tomb. <laughs> <laughs> we had to get this one in. We promised John that he would be on this one uh, many, many weeks ago. But <laughs> I think if I can make an executive decision, I would like to say that the first dictator we cover in our next episode, I want it to be Pol Pot. Is that okay with everyone? Cool thing. Yep. Oh yeah, definitely. I think he's one of the more uh, like I don't know if understated is the right term, but like under the radar, perhaps. Yeah, just not like a dictator you think of right off. You know, he's not in like a top definitely five. Definitely not list. as well known. Yeah, but For like sure. a very brutal, just, disgusting dude. There's some interesting points I want to make about. We're right back. I'm going to pee. What Cambodia was like? <laughs> I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna fucking cut that out. Um, no, you should definitely save that for something later. He, uh, he there's some interesting points I want to make about like Cambodia had a pretty interesting culture before, uh, like the th- three years or something leading up to the whole Khmer Rouge thing. They were just getting into like psychedelic rock. There's a lot we could talk about, but I think that should be the first. So I guess just tune in for that. Any other closing yeah. thoughts from you boys? 
No, good app. Yeah, well, thank you, John, for joining yeah, your tech. Yeah, tax dollars at work. It was the dark of the moon on the 6th of June in a Kenworth pulling logs. Cab over Pete with a reefer on and a Jimmy hauling hogs. We is heading for Bear on I-10, about a mile out of Shaky Town. I says, Pigpen, this here's a rubber duck, and I'm about to put the hammer down. By the time we got into Tulsa town, we had 85 trucks in all. But there's a roadblock up on the cloverleaf, and them bears is wall to wall. Yeah, them smokies as thick as bugs on a bumper. They even had a bear in the air. I says, calling all trucks, this here's the duck. We about to go a hunting bear. Mercy sakes, you better back off another 10. Well, we rolled up Interstate 44.